Our scripture reading today is going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. And as the orchestra is going down and uh, you are turning to that passage, uh, let me remind you that Warren Buffett promised a billion dollars to anybody who could get uh, the March Madness brackets perfect. And as of last night, mine are perfect. Uh, the, uh, the only problem is I redid them last night after the games were over. <laughs> I was dead, dead in the water. And I'm just going to tell you this. I've heard that Warren Buffett won't let you start again. But what Warren Buffett won't let us do, God does. And that leads us into a part of what I want to say today from this text so let us stand because what we're going to be listen, excuse me, <clears throat> listening to is God's word James chapter 2 will be beginning with verse 14 what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds can such faith save them uh, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But, but someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Uh, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, this is quite a text, isn't it? Uh, some, some people will say that Pastor James, who wrote it to his people, was being rather hard on them. And even harsh, some people say. But, but, but I am telling you that I have come to find in this passage such incredible good news. Uh, I have found in it an amazing message of, of God's grace to me personally and an opportunity of an experience 
of one part of God's grace to you as well, and I'm hoping I can find a way to communicate it to you on this Sunday morning. Because bottom line, what James is telling his people is this, that even though we are dead without faith in Jesus, God is willing to deal with us in such a way that he will transform our lives and make us people whose lives can be so different, so productive, that God himself will look at you and me and say, that's good. Turn our lives from deadness into a life of good works. That's what it's talking about. And, and so to try to communicate this to you, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I'm struggling with a sinus infection, so you can pray for healing. As we worship together, I feel better than when I walked in. I'll just, I'll just let you know that. If you'd sung a little louder, I'd be perfect today. Anyway, I thought what I need to do is to pull back again and remind us of a little bit of what we believe. I, I want to do some teaching. Will you stick with me for a moment? Because I want to remind you about a part of the good news that brings us together. I, I've called it five bullet points of God's good news. Uh, the first one is this. You might, you're not going to think it's all that great a news at first. Namely this, that before you and I come to Jesus, we are dead spiritually. <laughs> Uh, we're not alive to God. And, and, and I'm, I'm not talking about physically alive. Uh, most of you seem to be rather physically alive. I'm talking about alive to God. Because most people have, God has built us with this sense that there must be more in this world than just physical, material things. Uh, we often even come to church, many people go to church having a sense that there must be a God, maybe one like the Bible. But what I'm talking about is, is knowing God personally. In such a way that you call him Abba, uh, a father, that you enter boldly into his presence with confidence. And, and the Bible lets us know, and Paul, especially in the book of Ephesians, puts it so clearly. All of us were dead. And it was because of our own sins and transgressions. We'd walked away from God. He said, all of you, in the way you used to live, uh, were dead to God and, and deserving of God's wrath. So that's first. Number two, dead things can't bring themselves to life. Dead things can't bring themselves to life. And that means that we need someone who's alive actually to come in and to breathe life into our hearts and into our souls. Make us alive where we weren't alive. We, we need somebody who loves us in spite of our sins to come and say, I have hope for you. And again, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, I love this text. Paul would write, that because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Oh, I, I, a few of you are alive. I, <laughs> God, who is rich in mercy and, and loves us with an everlasting love, was willing to come and make us alive in Christ. It is by his grace that we've been saved. Uh, see, this is what brings us to church, isn't it? So it gives us something to sing. Three, so God's grace is necessary if people like you and I are going to have any hope of being right with him and alive and alive to God. And you know what the word grace means, don't you? It means God is willing to do something for us that we don't deserve. We, have, we can't earn it. We were dead, so we can't earn it. And yet God is filled with grace. So, so eternal life, this new life, being alive to know God, is not something that we can, can bring about by our own merits. It's a gift of God's grace received through faith. Also Ephesians 2. So that number four, it's when we believe in Jesus 
the only one who lived the life we should live and we haven't, and then died in our place and then rose again so that we can live. It's when we believe in Jesus that we are made right with God, we are made alive to God, and then we are given, this is amazing, God's Holy Spirit to live within us unholy people. And uh, he makes us alive and changes our lives. And, and Paul again in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. It's when you believe the gospel of Jesus that you were marked with a seal. You were marked with the promised Holy Spirit who is a promise, a guarantee from God, guaranteeing our inheritance. Telling us that we are his. Telling us that what he started he will complete. So that number five... When you and I come alive to God through faith in Jesus, our lives will change. Ephesians chapter 2 again. It is by God's grace we are saved through faith. It's not of works. But when we have received His grace through faith in Jesus, we become His workmanship. Ephesians 2.10. Created specifically to do the good works that God intended for us to do from the very beginning. Now when you look at all of that, all of it coming out of Ephesians 1 and 2. That's why I've called this sermon today. When you and I come to know Jesus as our Savior, we have to live. We have to live as, because we're alive to God. We must live like we're alive. So, that, that's the theology part. Well, one more thing I've got to talk to you about. This little problem that Martin Luther didn't like uh, between the Apostle Paul talking about faith and works and James talking about faith and works. Those of you who are new to church, this isn't going to make a lick of sense to you. But for the last 500 years, it's been a big problem in the church. So at least I've got to talk a few moments about it. Because many people say, look, Paul in Ephesians 1, Paul in Galatians, Paul in the book of Romans said that faith without works is what saves you. And here James says, listen, faith without works is dead. What's going on here? So let me make this point. James was writing this letter to his church people, people that he loved. In other words, he was writing to people who already professed to have placed their faith in Jesus and to have been made alive to God through faith in Jesus. It would be the way I'd write to you. You profess that Jesus is your Savior, that you've come alive to God, and the Holy Spirit dwells within. So his letter is written to tell them how they're supposed to live once they come to life. But it's the way he talks about it that has caused some people problems because Paul so clearly says it is faith without works that leads to salvation. Otherwise, we'll boast about it uh, throughout eternity in heaven. I did it. And James says, listen, it's faith without works that isn't faith at all. So what does he mean? Is he trying to say that uh, in order for us to be saved, faith and works somehow have to work together? Or is he saying, no, it's faith that leads you to being saved, and then you've got to sustain or maintain your salvation by working hard? Or is he saying something like this, that genuine faith in Jesus always leads to God coming into your life, and it is going to be evidence, it's going to result in your life being different. It's always going to result in good works. Well, pretty clear because I put it at number three that I believe it's the third of those. I should have put it at the middle, shouldn't I? Because I, I so deeply believe that the, the real issue here is this matter of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. When, when, when you and I 
trust Jesus as our Savior, God gives himself to us. In the Old Testament, people couldn't keep the law of God. But, but now, there's something different that's happened. Jesus' death on the cross made it possible for the Spirit of God to reside within people like us. So that when Paul was teaching in Ephesians, and in Galatians, and Romans, that you and I are made right with God by faith alone, he meant the only thing that can do that, the only thing that can make us alive to God at all, is God's grace that's just received by what Jesus did, not by what we do. And when James says in chapter 2, verse 24, that we're not justified by faith alone, he meant that that faith that makes us right with God can't just be alone. It's got to lead to something. He's saying the same thing that Paul said in the sense that when we believe, we become God's creation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And, and James was looking at his people and he says, I'm not seeing it happen. So maybe you're not alive to God. See, no matter how you understand theologically this matter of how faith and works function in God's saving process, if our lives aren't different, if our lives continue to be marked by the same sin that Jesus died for, and we somehow begin to feel content to live the way we once lived, that may not be real faith. You may still be living for yourself. Your faith may not be in Jesus at all. And, and James says, that stuff is dead. <laughs> There's no life in it. You've got to live now like you're alive. Now, that finally brings me to Pastor James writing to his people. Why does he write? You know, don't you feel like he's sort of grabbing you by the collars and shaking you here? Some people say he must not love his people much. And I think he loves them deeply. He loves them so much he won't leave them where they are. So, so I put it this way. I think this letter is, is Pastor James caring about his church people. And that he just loved them way too much to let them keep going down that, that, that path that they were going down. Now, I, I think if you're going to understand what James writes here, you almost have to get yourself into the shoes of his church people. I, and I want you to think about what what they had experienced with God. Uh, you know, the people who were receiving this letter in the book of James were those Christians who had come to, to know the Lord in Jerusalem. Uh, and their story is told in Acts 2 through 6. And again, if you're new to the Bible, book of Acts, just begin reading at chapter 2 and try to imagine being there through chapter 6 and, and that church in Jerusalem and what was happening there. Do you, do you remember what was happening? Acts chapter 2. Uh, they were all sort of mourning, uh, the Christians were, because uh, Jesus was gone when this mighty wind started blowing through. <laughs> it was the mighty wind of God's Spirit. And God's Spirit came into their lives at Pentecost. And they began to speak in other languages. And there were people there in Jerusalem that day speaking almost all the languages of the world and from all the nations of the known world. And they heard of the mighty works of God in their own language. And God worked in such powerful ways that people from all of these language groups received Jesus as Savior and were rescued and came into the church. I'm telling you, it was pretty exciting. Uh, nobody there had any doubts about whether there was a God because <laughs> they had experienced Him. Then as you go on and read in, in, in the book of Acts, you see what they experienced in the life of the church. They had these people from all over the world and language groups now in one church family. And in Acts chapter 2, 4 verses 32 to 37 
I'll tell you, it was a great church. I wonder if it was as good as ours. Uh, They were experiencing beautiful, Jesus-centered community in which the rich and the poor were worshiping together and serving together and helping one another. Uh, Read that through. It wasn't communism. It wasn't a socialist community. (laughs) It wasn't that everybody had to bring everything together and redistribute it. It was just a family functioning so that when some didn't have anything, others who had more would give something or even sell something and make it possible that everybody was able to live and to live well. As so much so that in Acts 4, this is what the report was. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no persons among them who remained in need. Isn't that beautiful? I just pray that'll be true of us. Then, in Acts chapter 6, the first couple of verses, problems arose. They always do among us as people, don't they? And their problems arose because they weren't a homogeneous group. They had these people from different cultures. They had people even who had first languages which were different from one another. And so those who were in sort of the majority group, the Aramaic-speaking group, they were watching out for one another. And, and the Greek-speaking bunch, their widows weren't getting any help. And the spiritual leaders began to recognize this and said, this isn't the way a church is supposed to be. And do you know what they did? They changed their church structures. They appointed uh, different leaders who all had Greek names. And they even redirected their financial resources to make sure that the needs were met. Now, I think that would probably be harder for us as a 120-year-old congregational church to do. But this is just the way Christians think, right? When we see that what's happening in our church isn't what God would have happen, we, we just say, God, help us here. Uh, we must find a way to do what you would have us to do. And they did. Uh, it must have been a thrilling place to be. But by the time James wrote this letter, time had passed. Really difficult days had come, beginning with Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and a young man named Stephen being martyred. Then persecution had come, and many of those people in the church of Jerusalem were driven out of Jerusalem by persecution because they were Christians and they were now scattered into a lot of cities and you know in much smaller churches they were facing trials of all kinds remember James chapter 1 and so I imagine that all that they experienced with God back in Acts chapter 2 through chapter 6 must have felt like that was a long long time ago in a place far far away (laughs) That's how it must have felt. And what James is seeing, the reports seem to be getting back to him, that their lives were no longer characterized by the same kind of faith that they had been living back in Jerusalem. I think they were no longer courageously going out and giving witness to Christ and being willing to pray for people and seeing the power of God to heal and to save. They weren't even, if you look at the early part of James 2, They weren't even obeying Jesus' royal law uh, to love one another as yourself. And and you see, I I think James, you see how I'm reading this now? James, as any loving pastor would do, would say, listen, you know that the experience with God is deeper than what you're experiencing right now. He said, and you know that the experience of the church has to be much richer and deeper than what's going on. 
And yes, it really does feel like him saying, listen, remember, remember who God is and what he's done. And get back to that kind of faith-filled living. That's how I read this this powerful, powerful text. So I, I see him writing this to try to shake his people out of their lethargy, out of just the routine of just showing up at church and then going back home and living the way they always did. And the evidence that we have from church history is that God used this letter from James to change their lives. They were revived. They got back to doing it. And I've been praying that God would even do a greater reviving work in our hearts than we've ever seen before. Maybe through this same text. So, what was going wrong? What was going wrong? And I've just marked down a couple of things. Problem number one. As I mentioned, they were disobeying not just a lot of commands, not just disobeying God's moral command. They were, they were even disobeying the royal command. And he gets at that in verses 14 to 17. Uh, those of you who have been here through my series, do you remember all the way back, James 1, 26 and 27? James has said, now listen to me. A real faith, genuine religion, is always going to come out in at least two ways. Number one, you're going to stay away from worldliness. You're not going to live the way the rest of the world does. So if you see that, you're in trouble. And number two, it's always going to come out in you caring, having the heart of God for people made in his image who are in distress, especially widows and orphans. Now, when you get into chapter two, the first part, what's happening is even in their local church gatherings, they weren't even welcoming the poor into their own church. They were sowing favoritism. If you have a lot, you can do a lot more for us. You're more welcome here. Others, you sit back over here someplace. So, so James is saying, that's not the church. So he takes that up again in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2. And he tells the story. So, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace. Now, that means I'm done with you. That's an idiom in the ancient world. That means, okay, I've said good things. Go in peace. I'm done with you. Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about the physical needs. What good is it? Second time he said that. What good is that kind of faith? So I'll just ask you, what good do you think that is? What, what kind of good is that? Well, most of you are kindred spirits with me. You know, in 21st century evangelical America, Though people might not just specifically say that, what I find many people, by the way we live, living out is, well, I know it doesn't do any good for them. But, you know, it, it still, that kind of faith still does good for me. It still saves me from hell. And, and James says, don't be too sure. In fact, when I, when I said this to a group of pastors on Tuesday, Pastor Jeff Leo, as I was saying, he says, don't be too sure. <laughs> And, and Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. That's not real faith. And actually when James writes about this, that that's dead. That's not real living faith that makes you alive to God. He's just citing his half-brother Jesus, who in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, said this. I'm sure you know these words. Jesus said, it's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does 
the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day when we stand before him, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. See, here's the point. Genuine faith in Jesus leads to us receiving the Holy Spirit. That's why I wanted us to start there. And that is always going to lead to our lives being shaped by Him. And then shaped by the teaching of Jesus, by by the life of Jesus. And if our commitment isn't to say, Lord, I've come again now, and I need to learn more about what my life should look like in the light of the fact that I'm alive to you, then we have to really ask the question about whether we're alive to Him at all or whether we're still living for ourselves. Problem number two. There seemed to have been a callousness that set in that was saying something like this. Well, Pastor James, I believe all the right things, so I'm fine as I am. Now, you're with me, aren't you? Some aren't. Uh, I've got to be really clear about something here. Uh, Believing the right things is important. Believing the right things about God and what he teaches in his word is essential to us living for God. I'm just telling you, the main place where God makes himself even known to us is through this special revelation we call the Bible. Uh, So we we need to read it to know God. The, The place where God mostly makes known to us how he's created us to live is right here. So, so those of us who want to know God better and how to live, we need to become the best students of this word that we possibly can be. I've got to say that or else you're going to come and say, listen, I don't have to believe the right things, so I'm not going to listen to you anymore, Greg. I, I want you to listen careful if I'm open the word, you see. Every godly Christian that I have ever met whose life is really being transformed by God has become the most, the most diligent uh, student of this word I've ever met. So, and I want you to be one of those. So we must, must know what God has said. On the other side, I've got to tell you this as well. Some of the best Bible scholars I have ever met in my life had no interest in walking with Jesus. Just, just in being Bible scholars. We can be scholars and still be dead to what God says. So listen to what James wrote in chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So according to the Bible, faith that doesn't change our lives is not only dead faith, it is devil's faith. Lord, save us at Lake Avenue Church from a dead faith. Save us from a devil's faith. I I say this because there has been a, a, a trend in some of evangelical America to think that the essential thing is to come and to be fed in church. And again, that's so important. You, you need to come to church and say, I hope that Pastor Greg opens the Bible today. I hope you'll come and say, I need to, I need to hear something from God today. But, but many times people can come and just want to be fed and take notes. But if we just do that and we are not always responding to what God says, we may be dead to him. 
Brothers and sisters, I find there to be something so thrilling about opening this word. Uh, sermons change if you know this is your father's word speaking to you, right? That you're going to give account to him. I, I find it so thrilling to know that in this word I, I can hear something from God. I can meet him in a fresh way. It should be thrilling even to listen to a sermon, believe it or not. If this word is what is being taught. So it's thrilling. It's thrilling when we think about that. On the other side, there's something so dangerous about believing all that. There's something dangerous about coming to a church and having the Bible opened. And that is that if it's God's word, then not only should we hear it, we must obey what God says. What we're responsible to living according to it. And, and James was so concerned that his people had gotten to a point where they were just listening to it and not obeying it. Here, here's his point. Simply knowing the truth is not what Jesus died to bring about in our lives. Jesus gave his life so that you and I could be transformed by the truth. He didn't just give his life to save us from past sins and let us go on killing our souls by sinning. He gave his life to rescue us from it. He wants us to live like we're alive. Uh, Number three problem. I think they were failing to live that kind of courageous, faith-filled, a life that, that they had lived when he saw them in Jerusalem. Uh, in in chapters, uh, verses 20 to 26 of chapter 2, uh, Pastor James does what any good preacher does. He illustrates his point. <laughs> he says, now if you're wondering what this kind of life looks like, I'm going to give you two examples. That they were mostly Jewish believers, maybe all, I don't know. Um, but um, uh, the two he picks out, they would have known both names. Uh, Abraham and Rahab. Now, now, the first thing I want you to see is how too different these two people are. Uh, Abraham, uh, their great spiritual leader and patriarch, a man of faith, uh, Gentile Rahab, the prostitute. The Bible calls it out. It wouldn't ignore that point. God looks at what she did and he commends her faith. Now, I I just got to tell you, if you've been reading through James and you see that one of the biggest problems in the church is that they had this favoritism of one group over another, you can see what Pastor James was doing, don't you? He takes the two most different kinds of people imaginable and he says both of them are people whose lives are commended by God. It's, It's a powerful point. Are you with me here? Now, I find in this incredible encouragement, on one side, it's so encouraging for me that somebody who is a, in a role of spiritual leadership like Abraham can still actually be a person of faith. It means there's hope for somebody who has on his name card senior pastor. It, it, it means that there is hope for so many of us who go to church, who've been to church our whole lives, and, you know, we maybe even been to a Christian school, and uh, we, we've been in Sunday school and taught it. And, and you know what we do? We kind of become the professional Christians. You know I've got to get up here and preach a sermon or you won't pay me. So you just get into this thing. I've, I've got to prepare a sermon. Check, 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 check. This is what you do. And you can get into a routine that's not alive at all. Any of you have ever felt that? 
And church can become boring like just punching the clock. And this is hope to me that a person who's in that role and has walked with God for a long time as Abraham had before this took place can still be a person of courageous faith. Um, so there's hope for me. And, 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 and for so many who may have come from the other extreme or somewhere in between, if you come out of a place of tremendous failure in the eyes of anybody in the world, maybe in your own eyes, like Rahab, maybe a life that had led to, to, to addiction even as far as prostitution as hers had led, that I'm telling you, in the eyes of God, there is grace for you. Do you see why I'm starting to get excited about this, this text? It is a celebration of the grace of God for all of us, telling us that those of us who were dead in our own lives to God can, can be made alive so that our lives can produce good works. The first thing I want to see how different that is, that means there's hope for everybody who is here. But it, it comes through faith. Trusting Him, surrendering our lives to Him. And then what we find both Abraham and Rahab doing, and it would be worthy of a sermon to go into it, but I'll just tell you, they, they did very hard things. Because this is what God often challenges us to do. He challenges us to do more than we could do in our own strength. Both Abraham and Rahab were called to do very difficult things. Maybe even to them it didn't make sense except God asked them to do it. And they did it. By faith, they did it. And they experienced the power and the presence and the rescue of God. And that's what James wanted his people to do again. They had had those times when they'd walked out of the church and they'd seen a sick person and prayed for them, seen a hurting person and welcomed them in seen a person who had failed and said there is hope for you there is grace for you there is a place of belonging for you and they had experienced the power the presence and the sufficiency of God and he wanted them to do that again so my, my time's gone um, I've thought what does Pastor Greg want to say to a group of people I love based on what Pastor James said to a group of people he loved so I'll, I'll mention a couple of things that have come to mind. One, for, for all who come today to church, to this church, I want you to know that you are alive to God. I, I'm quite sure you are here sensing that there is a God. Do you know Him personally? Do, do you just enter into His presence and fall upon Him and Call him your Abba, your Father. T tell him what has happened. Uh, trust him that he will love you and that he will walk with you. Um, you know where it begins. Paul talked about it. it. It begins by recognizing I can't do this myself, but that God loves me in spite of myself. And, and that what I need to do, what God asks me to do, is to admit that, to confess those sins to Him, and to say, here they are. Will you forgive me? I turn from them. I repent of them. Here are my sins. Will you take them? And then you ask Jesus to be your Savior and say that you will follow Him. I, I would ask you, if, if you've never entered into that place where you simply have said, I am a follower of Jesus, I believe in Jesus, then I would ask you even now, Use your own words, but, but to pray something like this. God, 
I have sensed for a long time that you are real, if that's true of you. But I have never really known you, not, not in the way that we've been talking about this morning. I've never really known you. And now I realize that my own sins have kept me from knowing you. I confess my sins to you now and ask you to forgive them on the basis of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And today I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. Come into my life. Make me alive to you today. I pray something like that. Uh, my testimony, and I think the testimony of hundreds of us here today, is that life begins when you place your faith in Jesus. I, want to make, I, want, I don't want anybody to come to church without knowing how that God can come and fill your soul and walk with you. Two, maybe you're a person more like me, you're a Christian, but today when you've come, you know that there's something amiss in your life, much more like where James thought a lot of his people were, that there were areas uh, of your life, uh, maybe your thoughts, your attitudes, your words, or specific things you're doing that are disobeying what God would have you to do. You know, mo most people in the world, Christians and non-Christians alike, know that there's a real disconnection between what we believe and what we want and what we actually do. Uh, again, Pastor Jeff Leo sent me a, an interesting article written by a psychologist in England named Ben Fletcher. It's in Psychology Today. And it's, it's, it's entitled, Are We Living a Lie? And he looked cross-culturally at this question. And he cited so many ways that he said people in our world are living lives, they say, they've separated what they believe and want from what they actually do. And he said what that leads to, his word is incoherence. Our, our lives are just separated. And he gave all sorts of examples like these. Uh, Carol loves watching cooking programs, but then lives on fast food. Uh, Kathy tries to park as close as she possibly can to the gym where she is going to an exercise class. Jim just renewed his wedding vows and is sleeping with his secretary. Again, uh, Fletcher calls this gulf between these two aspects of the self incoherence. And he says, when that happens, a person's life can never be, uh, have an internal harmony, be at peace, and can never really have honest relationships with anyone. And he gives all sorts of ways to bring, for people to bring about coherence in their lives. I agree with his analysis, not with his solution. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the only way to find coherence is surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. To focus our eyes on Him, to learning His Word, to asking His Holy Spirit, to bring our lives, our wants and our beliefs and our lives into unity, integrity, so that we can walk with Him. Today, if you come and the Spirit of God is showing you areas of your life where there's incoherence, will you begin again with Him? Warren Buffett won't let you. Jesus will.
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He, he will. If you confess your sins, if you repent of your sins, He will be who He is, faithful and just. He will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all that's not right. He'll start again. And three, are you open today to doing anything that God calls you to do? I mean, just, just remember Abraham and Rahab. Uh, he asked them to do challenging things, and when they just stepped out in obedience, they found that God was there. Have you been sensing that God might be calling you to a, to, to a different area of service, a different place of work? Maybe there's a broken relationship that you think, I'm the one who has to take that first step. Oh, there could be so many things. They just seem absolutely impossible. But you're sensing maybe God would have you to do it. You know what I want you to do? I want you to engage in an act that flows out of your faith. And I just want to tell you this on the basis of God's Word. It's when your faith flows into action that you find out that God is there. And your faith is no longer boring and the church becomes alive and, and you'll know the presence and power of God. So we're going to have a few moments for us to be praying about those three things. I want to give you this great verse from the Apostle Paul. I mean, if anybody had experienced that, it was Paul. I mean, he'd been out killing Christians and then suddenly his life was turned into calling people to Christ. Isn't it an amazing thing? And here's how he says, here's how it works. Ephesians 5.8. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The result, live as children of the light. Uh, Let's pull out our kneelers. I know in the balcony you don't have them. Close your eyes, bow before the Lord. As the uh, music team is playing, bring whatever you will to the Lord. First time of faith, a surrender of sin, or a willingness to tell God, Lord, I will go and do whatever you'd have me to do. I'll, I'll visit the sick, uh, I'll help the poor, I'll give witness to my boss, whatever it is. Give it to him, see what he says.